0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
1: All right, college football is back. I didn't know how bad I needed football until I heard Gus Johnson screaming in my face at 11 p.m. on a Thursday. But football is back, and Kansas takes the field against Tennessee Tech on Friday in Lawrence. We're going to talk about that game with Bryson Stricker. He is about as plugged into the Kansas football program as anybody I know. And I've gotten to know him over the past five or six years, and he's got an interesting perspective. We'll get his thoughts on this team this season and uh, what he expects the Jayhawks to accomplish on the field. You know, when football is back, that means different things for different people, and it's the time of the year, right before the first game, when every fan base has some level of optimism. And Kansas, wherever that spectrum is in terms of optimism versus pessimism, Kansas, for the better part of the past decade, if not longer, has been on the very extreme end of that spectrum. But each year, no matter who the coach has been, It feels like you're always being sold something, a reason to care this year, a reason why this season is going to be different, a reason why this team needs and deserves your support. It feels like there's always been somebody trying to sell you something. But this coaching staff, Lance Leipold, is not selling anything. I don't hear him saying anything. I don't hear him pitching anything. There are no tweets. There are no gimmicks. He's just a football coach. And that is so refreshing for a program that has had a revolving door of snake oil salesmen coming in and trying to sell you on why things are finally going to be different. Whether it was Charlie Weiss and the schematic advantage and the five-star quarterback transfers, or David Beatty and the big-time recruits who never really amounted to anything on the field, or if it was Les Miles who put the rings on the table, then you realize this guy shouldn't be running a lemonade stand better yet, a college football program. And now you have a guy who isn't selling you anything. He's got a coaching staff that he's been with for the better part of 20 years, and they're just coaching. They're just trying to build a football program. The Vegas over-under for this Kansas team is 2.5. Personally, if I were to bet, I would take the over. And it's not because I have some sort of belief that this roster has talent that they just haven't possessed in years past. It's just that I trust the guy in charge. I trust that the eye is on the prize. I trust that the guys in charge are just focused on building a winning program and aren't insecure about how they're going to do it, which hasn't always been the case in the past. I really don't think the talent this year is anything different than it's been in years past. We'll talk to Bryson about this coming up in a bit. When you go back to even the pre-Mangino era, I was going to games in the late 90s, early 2000s. I went to games my, my entire life with my family. And I remember the sort of the tail end of the Terry Allen years. And you look back at not just the tail end of that era, but the beginning of Mangino. Talent-wise, there's not a huge discrepancy in what Kansas had then versus what Kansas has had over the past 10 years. It just so happens they have had the absolute worst luck in hiring coaches. They have hired a bunch of guys who were in over their head, or were just going about things the exact wrong way. There have been good years. There have been good players. You remember Puka Williams. You remember uh, Joe Denine, Dorrance Armstrong, Daniel Wise. There have been a litany of good players come through this program over the past decade. It has never been an issue of talent. Even though there has been a talent discrepancy, that is always, always going to be the case at Kansas. You are not going to win at Kansas by getting the four-star recruits or by getting the three-star recruits. You get it. You win at Kansas by developing. That's why Kansas State and Bill Snyder had so much success for such a long period of time, getting unheralded players, developing them, and turning them into all Big 12 types. It is the only way to win at a place like Kansas. Culture, stability, development. It finally, finally feels like there is a guy and a coaching staff who was able to do that. I don't know if we're going to see them bear those fruits this year, but I trust that whether it's this year or next year, this team is finally not going to be a laughingstock. It's finally going to be a team that you can go and watch in person and not be shaking your head in disgust or embarrassment as you're walking out of the stadium. And that is the first step in many steps towards getting Kansas back on the right track. Bryson, you're probably one of the more difficult people I would have to introduce on this podcast because you don't have a clear and concise title as to why I would be having you on as a guest. So I'll just start with how you and I met. This would have been, I want to say, like 2017. I was doing some work for KU at the time. I was obviously still working in Lawrence. And this guy just like DMs me on Twitter and said he loved the show. And he knew I was at the Oread drinking beer, watching KU. And he's like, do you mind if I come by and have a beer? And I was like, you know, whatever. Like, sure. I don't even know who this dude is. And so this guy comes off. So we're watching a KU basketball game. And the entire game, he is sitting there talking KU football with me. And I'm like, what the, what the fuck is this guy? Like, why is he so obsessed with KU football? And he just wanted to come down here and talk. And uh, lo and behold, six years later, now you are one of the guys that people go to. When it comes to KU football news, I would probably describe you as a Kansas football super fan. I don't know how many of those are out there, but you have somehow parlayed your fandom into being, and I mean this with all respect, uh, one of the foremost experts on the program year in and year out. So that's my understanding. I know there are probably gaps to fill in there, but... How did you go from just being a Kansas football fan to, to being so plugged into the program?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was the fandom. Um, and I think it's a unique opportunity with a team like KU when you're so bad, the fans, especially the super fans, for the this term you used, um, you don't come sparingly. And, I, and it actually like really started uh, my sophomore year was when David Beatty took over. And in the spring, he had like an open practice for students. And I was one of like 15 there um and like it was re- very interactive and like they actually had a drill at the end where it's like a quarterback competition and basically like based off which side you're on whatever side won the i was on the offensive side and if i lost the offense was gonna have to like do extra push-ups or something after practice against the other and if like the other guy won it was the defense so uh i ended up winning and so then like everybody got all hyped and stuff and then like I remember I went to Hawk Talk for KU football that next following year. And, and that was when it was still at Salty Iguana. And I was the, probably at the time would have been 20. I might have been like a third of the age of the youngest person in the room. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. was like by far the youngest person in the room. And I went again, and then I went again. And everyone's like, why is this young kid here? He's never seen the team win. And David Beatty's wife uh, used to come, and I didn't even know who she was. But I actually sat next to her one night and was just like talking KU football with everyone and it comes time for a check and she like paid for my dinner um and it honestly just like kind of came from there where it's like they're seeing me at these road games i was one of my very good friends her and her dad used to go to road games and i'd go with them and like i'm always there front row in the student section it just kind of came to a point that baity like appreciated my support and uh um like on twitter for the most part i was very supportive um and so like he like got to a point he'd let me go to practice like he's like hey like if you want to come watch like after you know class or whatever like feel free. And at the time I that his credit was not on messaging boards or anything. So there was no one for me to tell because nobody cared. Um, and then it kind of just evolved into I graduated and I finally had enough money to afford Jayhawk slant. So I signed up for Jayhawk slant. And next thing you know, I'm spilling everything I ever saw uh, under David Beatty's reign, which was not very much appreciated. And then it kind of just came to like people I'd never hid behind anonymity or anything, so. You know, I have the same name everywhere. So people follow me on Twitter and it's like, I've been tweeting about KU football since the day I went to school there, but it's like now people are like associating me with it. And it, it really all just kind of came from there. And then obviously the, the very famous night at the airport was probably a a very monumental uh, night for me in terms of this, like kind of really taking it to the next level.
1: Can you explain that night at the airport as to how you uh, earned the moniker tarmac guy? Yeah. So I
2: always laugh because you know, I I don't know if people just don't watch enough movies, but like, you know, what what I make you believe you're seeing is not always what you're seeing. And like, I don't know if you've ever been to the Lawrence airport, but like they, it's covered and surrounded just like every other airport in this country with like 10 to 15 feet of fence that has barbed wire around it. I believe that I'm far more athletic than I am, but I can't jump over that fence. And so I always laugh that, like, people say I jumped over the fence and ran on the tarmac and, like, this, that, the other. I, I definitely made it appear that I did that. But more or less, like, we all thought that flight from Baton Rouge to Lawrence, which it sounds like, I mean, Jeff Long was meeting with Les Miles, like, with all the hindsight and miles to go stuff. Like, we were right in our suspicions. But for whatever reason, we'd all kind of convinced ourselves that Les Miles might be coming back on that flight. And so I got to the airport, went live on Periscope, the plane landed and then like the plane went off over to this back hangar and I like ran across the airport, showed the fence. I was like, guys, should I break through? And I did like through this little like a uh, side gate and went running down like a passenger street and then realized like there's nothing to see here. And so I went back and like for whatever reason and all of that between people who obviously weren't watching, there's was only like 500 some people watching. Like it got twisted into, I jumped over the fence, ran on the tarmac and like, you know, I, I am a, a guy that loves publicity. I, I'm, I'd I'm be an idiot not to, you know, play, play into that. So that's kind of where it all went to.
1: Yeah, and it's, I mean, it was kind of funny because I didn't know the the story behind climbing over the fence, but I think it was more about the fact that you ran onto the tarmac of the airport that people said, what in the fuck is this guy doing? But I will give you credit because you're, you've, I mean, you're a very online person, right? And yeah. you have certainly not been... Uh, shy of of making enemies here and there. Not to say that you're out going out of your way to do it, but it doesn't. You don't you don't seem to shy away from it. But I will give you credit that when you, I've always said this. Like you can you can talk that talk if you're right, right? If you if you're spewing bullshit and you're making stuff up, then eventually it won't matter if you're if everybody likes you or hates you. Nobody's going to pay attention to you. But I mean, time after time, you've got a lot of this stuff right, which is why I think uh, you've you've developed and, and earned the following that you have. So. Uh, kudos to you and uh, I'm glad that you we've we've kept in touch over the years obviously and I'm I'm glad to have you on to talk KU football because you I'm not trying to call you a fraud you're not a fraud but the optimism sometimes that you share on Twitter does not always match the optimism or lack thereof in some of the conversations that we've had about Kansas football this year so I want the honest opinion about about your optimism about the talent on this roster compared to the teams that you saw under David Beatty under Les Miles over the past you know five six seasons
2: yeah so I mean where the roster's at I I feel good and and I don't think I want to even compare it to 2018 or 2019 because I think the talent is there but I don't I think there's something especially in college athletics to be said about having veteran talent compared to younger talent I think some of the better players on this team are still sophomores a couple of them maybe juniors but like COVID sophomores or, or whatever the term would be there. So I, I don't think they're there. There's no Joe Denine, you know, really on this team or, or even a Carter Stanley, but I think that talent is there and I'll die on the hill. I'm. You've heard me die on this hill. Those 2018, 2019 teams were bowl game teams. What they had though was David Beatty, who's quite frankly, just not a good football coach and Les Miles, who was very much on the tail end of his football coaching career. And so you look at that, you didn't have the coaching advantage in at least 10 or sometimes 12 of the games and so you need those things to be in your favor but it's like you put us in a different conference you give us a little bit easier break of a schedule and those teams really could have competed to be in a bowl game like i I don't think there's some massive difference between that through those two three and nine teams and those teams being six and six they they both had the opportunities to be there like we shouldn't have lost to coastal carolina less miles first year we could all say that that was an embarrassing loss and then we went out and smacked Boston College. So that I, I've always kind of felt like those teams were way better than their record. And it obviously sucks that they didn't do better. And we never really built on it. We went 0-8 or 0-9 the next year under Les Miles. So we never, you know, got to build momentum there. But this team is talented. And what I think it has that those teams didn't have is it has the coaching. And I think the Lance Leifold will be the better football coach in half of the football games at least that we play this year, which it, KU hasn't had since Mark Mangino has been here. And I think that is something that now as the talent continues to get better and get better is going to help us win football games. Like I, I I I do spew the optimism because it's like, oh guys, like we're going to be three and nine. Like, you know, KU fans do get excited for that, but that isn't what really gets people. It's the, you know, the the everlasting hope that if the ball drops our way or the other team fumbles or, you know, whatever butt fumbles, whatever you need to win those Big 12 games, like then that's the hope that we can go to the bowl game. But, like, 3-9, and 4-8 and eight is where I expect this team to be. But as I kind of told you earlier, it's like, I think that at the end of this season, we're going to be like, gosh, that like, we could have made a bowl. Like, we could have made a bowl game. And, and I think the way the schedule breaks, I, I don't love it for us that, like, all of our easy games at the beginning of the year, because even as over this past decade plus that we were bad, we were normally playing decent at the end of the year. Like, by the end of the season, like, we were like, Competing in games we shouldn't be competing in, and I think it helps that teams aren't always taking us seriously and stuff. But I really do think that like it sucks that all of our hard opponents are at the end of the year, like ending the year against K State, like I think that's the type of team. Like maybe if their season's falling apart, you know, maybe we could beat them. But like I think that Iowa State, TCU, um West Virginia, Te- and Texas Tech is at the end of the year. But I- I'm pretty high in Joey McGuire myself, but. I think those games are all more than winnable. It's a question of whether or not Lance is going to have this team ready to win those games at that point in the season.
1: I want to get into the schedule here in a bit, but you, you said, I think you said what, you think it's a three-win football team, a four-win football team? Yeah. I had uh, you know Brandon McAnderson on last week. He thinks they're going to win five games. The official Vegas over-under is two and a half. Whatever you think that win total ends up being for this team at the end of the year, from a football point of view, How does this Kansas team manufacture wins in
2: 2022? Um, How do they manufacture wins? I would say the big thing is going to be staying healthy because I think where this team struggled last year, I think where this team is going to struggle even into this season is the fact that they're not that deep. I, I think that like we are significantly more deep than we were last year. I think if you look at first halves, I remember Lance, I think, KU covered the first six games, the first half spread, in the first six games. Like we were winning half our games at halftime in the first six games. But then you saw in the second half, we couldn't sustain anything. And so I, I think it's going to be better. I think they brought it, They that's the point of the transfer portals to make your team more deep. And so I think this team is going to be more deep, but staying healthy is going to be the big thing, especially on the offensive line. I think if we can go games one through 12 with the offensive line, all staying healthy, we're going to be a lot closer to five or six wins than two or three wins in my opinion. But it's like, that's history shows. That's not really realistic. I mean, heck uh, Armage Adams has already gotten hurt uh, in some capacity in fall camp. So um, injuries and staying healthy is going to be the number one way. And then two is productive play between Jalen Daniels and the wide receivers. I think that there's a reason why Devin Neal's biggest game was a game where our wide receivers and tight ends had a very successful game against Texas last year. Like our wide receivers, Kwame Lasseter, who obviously, you know, is not here anymore, had a fantastic game against Texas. And when these teams know, like, I mean, Lance and Andy Kolenicki have not hidden that we're going to try to run the ball. We don't have Devin Neal, Kai Thomas, Daniel Hyshaw, and Savion Morrison to not run the ball. Like we're going to try to run the ball, but when teams can't pack the box on us have to respect the fact that Jalen Daniels can move the ball, um, That's what's going to elevate this team and and elevate this team to have that potential that like Devin Neal can do Devin Neal things. And Kai Thomas, I mean, I know the staff that at least when they were recruiting Kai, like honestly kind of felt like he might be better than Devin Neal. And so it's like, we have a very solid group there, but there's nothing you can do if you can't make the other team respect your passing game. And so I think that is going to be the big thing on the offense and then on defense, it's solid linebacker play because we have not had that since Joe Dineen left. Um, and I think last year too, I think the defensive line was really bad too, but like the linebacker group, like you look at that depth chart and you see something you have not seen in a long time. And that is genuine depth, like genuine starters who are backups. And it's like, if Gavin Potter is your worst linebacker, you're in a good spot. The problem has been over the past two years is he's been our best, best yeah, linebacker. Yeah. And so we're in a, in a spot now where Gavin Potter and I'll say uh, the depth chart was, there was a lot of very interesting ores on there. I don't think he's in an aura situation by any means, but Gavin Potter is going to play, but he's going to be your first or second guy off the bench. And that is a significant step forward. And it's not an indictment on Gavin. It's an indictment on the guys that they brought in. And I even think guys like Eric Gilliard, their second string currently, like those guys, six, seven people in that linebacker room are all going to play. And Craig Young, I, I have heard nothing, but I mean, my understanding is that they, the staff would tell you he's the best player on the team. And so like, that is a linebacker who is now being classified as one of the best players on the team. And mind you, Kyron Johnson was pretty good last year, but like it, it's a situation where that group is so deep. And now it's like you, that group has so much rotation. Like we still played six players last year, but there was a significant drop off like when Gavin Potter came out of the game. And so it's like, everyone's was like, Oh, bench Gavin, we're tired of him. Well, we benched him and then we get, give up 60 points. And so, the fact that at all times we're going to have, like, good players in the linebacker room, I think that's going to be massive for this defense and help us win games.
1: So you hit on a few things there, but one thing that you mentioned on both offense and defense was the lines and how much they struggled last year. You return basic – I mean, I'm I'm struggling to think of how, how many starters did they lose on the on the offense and defensive lines combined? Um, I think only one. One, right. right. I mean, yeah. yeah. So – They got killed up front last year on both sides of the ball. I know we saw a little bit of improvement at the end of the year, especially on the offensive line. We can get caught up in skill players, all the running backs, Jalen Daniels, Jason Bean. To me, none of that matters unless the offensive line takes them massively because even with the improvement we saw at the end of the year, that was one of the worst units in college football. Is there reason to believe that that unit can take a step forward this year
2: yeah i think so first off because i I think scott Fuchs is a fantastic offensive line coach and i think like you saw what he did in a matter of months um you know like it's never lost on me that the staff was brought in in may last year had no spring football and fall camp was like all their installation as far as i'm concerned like the staff took over august 1st because that's the real date that football really starts and in a matter of between august 1st and the end of November had them beating a team filled with four and five stars. There's not—I remember looking—the worst player on the Texas defensive line last year when we beat them, and we didn't manhandle them by any means, but we were able to run the ball however we yeah, needed. Their yeah. worst player would have been our best recruit in all of the past four classes, <laughs> and so it's like you're talking about a group where it's like they got so much better in that time period, but then also too, you added a Dominic Puny, uh, you you added Dre Dorian. And then also two like Mike Nowitzki is going to get drafted this year. Like I mean, he he uh, assuming he they assume he's going to go pro. Like he is going to get drafted this year. Earl Bostic, assuming he continues to progress as he progressed last year and has progressed in the years prior, is probably going to get drafted. Only sixth seventh round, nothing to really brag about. But like there are two NFL potential linemen on this roster for this upcoming season. Let alone the guys like. Michael Ford got significantly better last year, and I believe he's still a sophomore. Bryce Cable do similar situation. Armage Adams, like, dude, I could only dream of having a physical a tr- physical transformation the way that guy, I mean, he came in almost 400 pounds. Now he's closer to 300, and the dude looks like he could move buildings. So I, I think that that offensive line is going to be significantly better. The problem is there's only about six or seven of them that are at that caliber of fi- significantly better. And from what I've heard is it's not pretty after that. And so I I think the defensive side has gotten deeper, like the second, third string, I think, could play if they need to. And they will, obviously. But it sounds like the offensive line is about seven people deep before we'd probably start getting in serious trouble. And I think the real evidence of that is that I think any football coach in the world would tell you they'd rather have a first string left tackle, left string, a second string left tackle, whereas we have, like, if mike Nowitzki gets hurt michael ford moves to center yeah. this guy moves here this guy moves here that's more of an indication that they're they're not very comfortable with what's behind um and so but yeah i think that group's definitely going to make a step forward
1: so with the quarterback play jalen daniels is going to be the starter it sounds like maybe there's not as much separation between he and jason bean do you view jalen daniels as being the starter all season long or or do you think that leash may be a little bit shorter and we could see a little bit of both of those guys. I
2: view Jalen Daniels the same way I viewed Carter Stanley in 2019, where I thought that leash was short, but I still stand by. And I didn't have the faith in Carter that I um, do in Jalen. And I think Carter showing us in 2019 has helped me have my faith now in Jalen where it's like Jalen was never good at practice. That's why his first year he started as third string quarterback and that's why last year, I believe he was third string core. Yeah, he was third yeah, string quarterback like last he was year too. So Kendrick. it's like, yeah, so it's like, he's never been the guy at fall camp that's going to knock your brakes off. But what he has been is a guy that comes in games and, and he still has had those turnover problems at times. But he has been a guy that comes in games and shows that he can take over and that he has the physical tools. And I know the staff believed in his physical tools last year, but there was just still the turnovers and problems with that. And so... I think if the staff is still willing to give it to him, especially after I heard he was he was pretty bad at the beginning of fall camp, and so the fact that the staff is still giving him the keys at this point, like I I just don't have a reason to believe that he's going to get be bad in the games. Like I I just like I don't have any reason to believe that Jalen is going to perform worse than he did last year. And so my only take on maybe Bean ends up playing is I've heard Bean has made significant steps forward. It's it's more of a if anything at this point if Bean ends up playing. It's because Jalen isn't playing necessarily as good as the staff feels he can. And they have faith now in Jason Bean that Jason Bean can be more than just a, uh, a runner and can make those throws downfield because I think that severely limited our offense, the fact that most teams knew Jason Bean couldn't deliver the ball past 30 yards. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I, I have no reason really to believe that Jalen Daniels won't be our quarterback game 12. Um, but obviously, I mean, we've shown too, I don't think we've. Like, had a season with less than three quarterbacks play injuries, obviously.
1: Yeah, well, you just mentioned it because the offense last year changed a lot once Jalen came in. Jason B was the team's second leading rusher, and he might be the fastest guy on the team. So, is the offense going to look drastically different than what we saw a season ago? I mean, not just the last three when Jalen was the quarterback, but in terms of what we saw f- for the majority of the season with Jason B. Now, if we're to assume it's going to be Jalen from game one to game 12. How much different is this offense going to look?
2: I think it's going to look a decent amount different just because you have a coaching staff that has actual time. I think uh, Andy like you talked about it in fall camp. Like now you're getting an opportunity to install things and, and change things. Whereas last year it was teach They were teaching people. They were saying, okay, Hey, like, this is what we want to do. And I think, you know, at times as a fan, like it's, it's super frustrating to watch the team, you know, make a certain third down call or, or make a play. It's like, why are we doing that? Like, it's not working, but it's like the staff is saying, Hey, we're teaching here. And that's kind of been Lance's big thing. And, um, you know, we're teaching, we're teaching these guys who haven't been properly coached. Some of them have never been properly coached. Um, and so it's like, we're teaching these guys this, I think now it's like, Hey, we know what we want to do. We know who our players are. We know what we can do with them. We know the limits of their body and we know what we can do. And I think now like you're going to see a lot more like what you saw against Texas. Like I remember tweeting during that Texas game, like is that Sean McVay and Andy Nicky's body? Because like this isn't what we've seen all year by any means. And so, yeah, I think that like, you're going to see, I think we didn't get to see it because I think Jason Bean got hurt um, pretty quickly when they tried to do the two quarterback thing. But like, I think that was like a serious game plan up there. It's like Jason Bean has game-changing speed. There's no doubt about it. And so finding ways to even get him involved of a two-quarterback situation, whatever the situation was going to be, and I think you're going to see this offense have way more wrinkles, way more players involved. Like Jared Casey at the end of the year, he was the player everyone, every time you saw Jared Casey in the game, everyone's excited. Jared Casey is still a fourth-string tight end at best, really. And maybe third-string if you really want to, like, you know, nudge things. But it's like, but they're going to find ways to get Jerry because the kid has the best hands on the team. So it's like, they're going to do things that are a little bit different. I think they know that they have guys that are really good at pass catching, but can't block at tight end and things like that. So I, I do think you're going to see a lot out of this uh, offense issue. It's a lot more different and and hopefully it's uh, successful
1: one of the biggest, you know, sort of talking points over the summer has been the depth of the running back room. You know, you bring in Kai Thomas, you bring in Savion Morrison, Daniel Hysha has been really popular. It's four guys, right? And we know that four guys are not going to play significant roles. And it just doesn't happen. Find me a team that has four running backs that are all heavily involved. It won't happen. But Devin Neal is still that guy at the top of the depth chart. How much of a gap do you think there is between him and the rest of that running back room?
2: I would have probably told you a very, very minor gap between him and Kai and then, like, a pretty decent-sized gap between Shaw and Morrison probably, like, three weeks ago. But everything I hear is that it's, like, in all honesty, like, Daniel Highshaw might be ahead of Kai Thomas, like, in seriousness on this depth chart right now. Um, And so I I don't think the gap's that big at all. I I think it's more of a the staff knows what – they all can do. Like Daniel Highshaw is probably not going to catch that many passes this year. I, I think like you can just assume based off the style of running back he is. But like I I really do think that it's gonna be more of a situational situation, but also too, like Savion Morrison has had times that he's looked like the best. And he's fourth on the depth chart. Okay, right so now. is
1: this an indictment on Devin Neal? I don't mean to cut you off, but like Devin Neal, major recruit, and I get it, he's a hometown kid, so that sort of adds to the allure. But he's a pro, like he is a prototypical running back. Big, strong, NFL size. And I sort of kind of expected coming into his sophomore year that like this was going to be his team. So is it unfair to read that in any way as like a a shot against him or how he's performed?
2: I don't think so because I think Devin, the I think like anyone that watches practice or on the staff would tell you like Devin's done everything they've asked. Like I I think I don't think Devin has turned the ball over in any capacity this season or in, in fall camp, which is different than the rest of the uh, the running backs. And, like, I, I just really do think it's a thing. Like, Kai Thomas was about as good of a recruit or a highly touted recruit out of high school. Like, Savion Morrison, like, not too far behind. I think the real surprise, I think Daniel Hoshaw was a two-star. You know, so I think it's, like, obviously like, somewhat surprising. But I, I don't think it's an indictment on Devin. But what I think it is that KU fans, like, kind of lose perspective on is that Devin, we saw so much of Devin in that Texas game. And like, everyone remembers how good of a game he had. He should not have been playing that much. He was playing that much because he was the only option because everybody in that room was hurt. Tori Lachlan was hurt. And I haven't even mentioned Tory Lachlan. I do think he'll still play this year, but like everyone in that room was hurt. And so, yeah, like we saw Devin do great things, but Devin would probably even still tell you his body didn't need that. Like the staff would say his body does not need that. And so, I think it's more of a matter of like, I think Devin will still end up at the end of the season being the leading rusher still probably being the starting running back. Um, I just think it's more of a matter of like in a dream world, our running back is taking half as many touches as he had last year. And they will happily dish them out to the other guys. And like we saw it, like it was never really handled well between Puka and Khalil and Don Williams and stuff. But like, you know, there were those moments where Dom Williams had a good game and then you had Khalil rush for like 200 yards against Boston college. So I think it'll be a little bit more similar to that.
1: You mentioned the schedule earlier. Um, it's it's pretty backloaded in terms of the toughest games for KU. You open up against Tennessee Tech, obviously not a very very good FCS team. Uh, Duke, even though they beat the hell out of you last year, that's a team that lost a lot. It should be at least on paper a a pretty even matchup. You got West Virginia, who's probably the second worst team in the Big Twelve ahead of Kansas. Then Iowa State, who they've obviously kind of established themselves in recent years, but they lose a lot as well. And I look at that that first, those first five games, I didn't mention the Houston game, but I look at those five, first five games and I think, man, there's two games I fully expect them to win. The Duke's probably going to be a close to a pick-em, but if there were ever a time to steal a Big 12 win, it would be in that first month of the season. Why don't you like that, that it's sort of front-loaded in terms of uh, winnable opportunities for Kansas?
2: Yeah, I, I just, like, I guess, like, I'm just using history. Like, I, I it's not necessarily fair to grade, you know, Lance and, and this team with history, but it's, like, we have looked good by week 12, or good's a very relative term, but we have looked like a team that can win football games by week 12 just about every year, including the, I mean, David Beatty's Owen 12 team almost beat TCU, you know? So it's, like, it's one of those situations where every year at the end of the year, we can almost win these games, and it's, like, I would rather lose the games that we're not re- when we're not ready to win against Oklahoma, against Texas, against Oklahoma State, because we're not going to win those games regardless of where they're at on the schedule. Um and so it's more of just a preference to have those games later um and and get this team playing at the level it can. But I think, you know, there is a decent point to be brought up that West Virginia is basically a completely new team this year. And so playing them week two, um, you know, is maybe actually a little bit more advantageous for Kansas. And and I think too, like my other thing is like almost back to back to back to back winnable games like I think the Houston game is still at the end of the day somewhat winnable like I'll I'll take a a ranked group of five opponent over a ranked big 12 opponent any time like well technically they are a big 12 opponent so yeah yeah true um but like I told you yesterday like I still I think Jalen Daniels is better than their quarterback I I think that our running backs are better than their running backs and, and that you can't just go like for like to win a football game but like that Houston team is significantly more likely to have a bad game or implode than Oklahoma State is or K-State is. And so it's Mm -hmm. like I would rather still, like, give us a better chance in that game. But, you know, I think that my take is, I know we've talked about the Vegas over-under on two and a half wins. Like, if you don't get three wins in those first five, it's going to be a long seven games. Well, you have to beat
1: Duke, right? Like, that's the one non-negotiable.
2: Yeah, and I think, too, like, that final scoreline, you know, they did beat the hell of us with the final scoreline, but we were winning at halftime last year. And so, you know, you know, what's the sign of a team that is winning the first half, losing the second half, a team that doesn't have depth. And all we've talked about is how much depth this team has. So I, I view that as a game that like very similar to Rutgers in 2018, where it's like, I didn't expect us to beat them 52 to 10 or whatever we beat them by. But I think that this game should be easily won. Like maybe only, might only be two touchdowns, but, uh, uh, two touchdowns that they were never, you know, driving to be leading type of situation.
1: All right, we only got a few minutes left, but I want to leave you on this. Um, Lance seems to bring about uh, the words you kind of keep hearing tossed around is just stability, structure, stuff that we never heard about any of the past coaches, at least in the past, you know, 12, 13 years. I know you're pretty plugged in around there. What are maybe just some of the sentiments, some of the things that you hear in terms of environment, culture, and and everything that sort of permeates from Lance Leipold and this coaching staff?
2: Yeah, so I, I think there's like three things that I can always say are like the big things there. I remember the first one was that when Lance like took over and met with the team, he told them all like, you know, coaches before might've been teaching you this or, and coaching you this way. Like what Lance's philosophy is, I'm going to coach your coaches how to coach you properly. And I think you that's basically more or less what Nick Saban does. Everyone always talks about that. That's exactly what Nick Saban does. And so I, I think that's the big thing is he has a group, I think, of 10 assistant coaches, I think is the number nowadays, uh, of 10 assistant coaches that, first off, he hand-chose. I, I think he, at this point, you know, minus uh, Jonathan Wallace, but he's obviously made the decision to retain Jonathan Wallace and uh, Jordan Peterson at this point. And so he has a group of guys that he trusts and that he wants to be his assistant coach. I don't think any head coach since at least Charlie, I mean, before Charlie Weiss can say that because David Beatty was forced to keep people obviously. And like at times like he had assistants that didn't want to work for him. And I think that same thing applies with love smiles. So the way Lance likes to operate, I mean, Andy Kotelnicki and, and Brian Boland have been with him for so long. I mean, and, and a majority of these coaches have been with him for so long that there is that, when your entire staff is bought in and is on the same page and that that, that was just not the case. Like we don't need to do, obviously hash out details, but I promise you that it was never a, a smooth operation between defensive coordinator and his assistants and offensive coordinator and their assistants, you know, under less miles. And so I think that's the first thing. And I think the second thing is the amount of respect that Lance has for the student athlete. Whereas I feel like a lot of times it's been either a mix of you have a Charlie Weiss who thinks he's so much better than us that everything he says is the gospel. Well, then you go to a guy like David Beatty where he clearly doesn't know what's going on. He's in over his head. And so he's all trying to be buddy, buddy with the players rather than being, Hey, at the end of the day, like I am your boss. I am your leader. I am the captain, but you know, you need to respect me, but I can be your friend. He wanted to be their friend. Well, then we went back to Les miles who thought everything he said and did was the gospel. And so it's like, it, there was never that like combined respect. And I think, you know, barring the incident last week with T- Tanaka Scott and, and Trevor Wilson, this team hasn't gotten in trouble. You, these kids aren't getting in trouble. They're, they're staying out of trouble. There's just a mutual respect that Lance cares about them, and I think him bringing players from Buffalo that could speak to that was very good, uh, I think a good testament to some of these guys because, to be honest, I am still a little bit surprised how little of uh, attrition we had in the transfer portal, but I think that's honestly the biggest thing is that these guys respect, respect Lance, And Lance respects them. And I think that is, like, going to go a long way, especially with a football team that's trying to rebuild and hasn't won more than three games in 15 years.
1: Hey, I appreciate it, man. It's fun to catch up and do it on uh, an official platform. So thanks for the time, Bryce. And we'll do it again soon, man. Anytime, man. All right, we'll be back next week to recap the Kansas-Tennessee Tech game. Then you've got West Virginia, Duke, Iowa State, Houston. There are a couple winnable games in there, but it all starts with just taking care of business against, what, is a pretty bad FCS team. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, review. I know you're listening. If you've made it this far into the podcast and you haven't went on Apple or wherever you're listening right now and hitting that subscribe button, leaving a five-star review, come on, you've made it this far. What's a few more clicks? Thank you so much. We'll be back next week. Waving in the week.